Ian McEwan's book, Saturday, is, a, is an absolutely fascinating book. Um, I've mentioned it before, but let me uh, mention it again. All the action happens on Saturday, the 15th of February, 2003, the day of the uh, anti-Iraq war protests, which was actually uh, uh, the largest global protest in history, according to the Guinness Book of Records. And uh, the whole book is a quiet lament against that backdrop of turmoil. And McEwen chooses to use as the centrepiece of uh, the book a, a 19th century poem by Matthew Arnold called Dover Beach. In that poem, uh, written in 1851, Matthew Arnold mourns his and Britain's decline of faith at that time. He likens it to the ebb of the tide on the, on a, on the shingle beach of Dover. And uh, the poem ends in this way. The sea of faith was once too at the, the, at the full and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its long, its melancholy long withdrawing roar. Retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, but let us be true to one another. For the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. Now you're going to have to read Ian McEwan's book to see how he uses uh, that poem. It is... um, Fascinating, scintillating. During it, he makes it absolutely plain as the author that he shares Matthew Arnold's sense of loss. In many ways, there is a relationship between that sense of loss and 1 Samuel chapter, uh, chapters 5 and 6. Let me explain. The ebb and flow of faith, says the Bible, is nothing new. It's been happening down through the ages in every age. And the early chapters of 1 Samuel are are demonstrating actually just one of those moments in history. There is a flow, there is a rise in faith that has been happening through these early chapters in 1 Samuel that we have seen, we have plotted as we've been studying these chapters. There was in 1 Samuel 3, little Samuel with his servant-heartedness his growing wisdom, his courage, who is rising in stature through these chapters. 
just actually as his mother, Hannah, said. She uh, um, uh, uh, said a prayer, wrote a prayer, didn't she, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where she described God lifting up the humble. That was her, that was her little son. God does that in every age. Lifting up the insignificant and humble. But she also warned in 1 Samuel 2 that God puts down the proud. And uh, the, the, the shocking message so far of 1 Samuel has been that the proud are often found amongst the people of God. There were those young men, Hophni and Phineas, and even to a certain extent their father, Eli. Upstanding people, apparently, at the heart of the people of God, but they are proud, the sons are wicked, and God will put them down. We traced that as well, haven't we? Up to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Here is what God does in age after age after age. He lifts up the humble and he puts down the proud, not least the proud amongst his people. We saw at the end of our time um, last week that disaster had come upon Israel. They were defeated. Hophni and Phinehas and Eli were dead and worst of all, the ark of God, the symbol of God's presence was captured by the Philistines and taken away. God's people were defeated. What about God? Oh no, God's not defeated. Amazingly, God was the agent of those events and now the wider world, the Philistines, are going to find out just how powerful he is. So, What's going to happen to the Philistines as they take away the ark of God? That's the question that um, uh, is hanging there as one Samuel 5 begins. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer, that's in the land of Israel, to Ashdod, one of the great uh, uh, cities of Philistia. And they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it uh, beside Dagon. This 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 is ritual humiliation of the God of Israel. This is the stuff that, that, that Richard Dawkins loves to do all of the time. This is what they're doing. And they get a shock. first thing that we start to see in 1 Samuel 5 is signs of judgment. Verse 3. When the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, there was Dagon, their god, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. To fall on your face, you see, was, was a sign of submission, was a sign of worship. Dagon is bowing before the true God and in a sort of pathetic little cameo, the people come along 
and they, they pick up dear old Dagon and set him on, on his feet again. But uh, the next night things have got worse, verse 4. But the following night when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord and his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remains. His life has been cut off, his head. His power has been severed, his hands. Indeed, perhaps it looks a little bit like he was hanging on to the threshold of the temple, trying desperately to get out of there when God's judgment fell on him. He is a dead, spent force, this God. And the conclusion of the Philistines is absolutely pathetic. Verse 5, That's why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod, uh, who enter the, the temple, step on the threshold. In other words, the threshold's a dangerous place, they conclude. Fools, aren't they? God is a dangerous God. That's the real message. And that becomes slowly clearer as time goes on. The Lord's hand, verse 6, was heavy upon the people of Ashdod in its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumours. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. They, they, they see then increasing signs of judgment in their society. The, um, the, these these tumours, these swellings, um, it seems are probably bubonic plague. Bubonic plague causes what are called buboes uh, um, in in your lymph nodes, so, swellings, and they're so they're spread. It's spread by rats. So and rats come into the story in a little while. So in one sense, it's a natural disaster that is coming upon these people. But but the Bible is not wrong to see God behind it. And the Philistines start to draw that conclusion. The Lord's hand is heavy upon them. So what do they do? Well, let's shove it just down the coast a little bit to Gath, another Philistine city. Let them deal with it. Gath actually meets similar problems, so uh, in their kindness and generosity they donate it to another Philistine city, to Ekron. And um, by verse 10, uh, it seems the ark has something of a reputation. They sent the ark of God to Ekron and as the people of, as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought the ark of the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. You're right. That's what's going on. Is that just an ancient story with amongst simple people? Or does it have connections to today? I think you see there are profound and important connections to today and And in order to see that, we need to understand something that the Bible teaches. Though we may, 
as a Western culture, have abandoned temples to Dagon and little idols, the Bible says human beings are still every bit as idolatrous. Because at the heart of idolatry is not building temples and making little figurines. It's having something in your heart that rivals God. Having some affection for something, some desire for something. To look to something to provide you with security and purpose and hope other than the living God. On Tuesday, um, we are discussing um, the Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. Anyone who wants to come, just sign up on the website um, and uh, we can perhaps pursue some of this a, a, a little bit more. Um, listen to this from Tim Keller. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the centre of our lives. We think, because we think they can give us significance, security, safety and fulfilment if we attain them. A human heart is endemically idolatrous. Just because we no longer um, build temples like the Philistines doesn't mean to say that there are not idols in our hearts, says the Bible. And God, today, is just as determined to show their, their uselessness, their lifelessness, their powerlessness, as he ever was. Often, often people summarise this, 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 this idolatry of the human heart under three headings. It's quite useful. Money, sex and power. We saw money, sex and power um, uh, subverting Hophni and Phineas a couple of uh, chapters ago. Think about that in our lives for a while. We idolise money. We think it's the key to all of our hopes. And so we let the financial institutions go wild and it collapses. We idolise sex and love. And so as, uh, as we def- desperately search for a satisfying, fulfilling relationship, we actually preside over the collapse of the family and growing, rising generations each generation less able to maintain satisfying relationships than the last. That's what's happening. We idolise power. Over the last century or so, the Western world has used its power to manipulate all sorts of weaker countries and today the Muslim world who have suffered as much as anyone else at the hands of the West are sending suicide bombers. You see? 
if any of those things takes an inappropriate place in our lives, money, sex, power, you could think of other things, it will show itself to be entirely useless. Indeed, we will find the hand of God heavy upon us. I suspect some commentators um, uh, point us in this direction. I suspect that the the rise of the new atheism with Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens and and the like is partly fuelled by that an inchoate sense of fear, rather like these Philistines have. They can see that there's a connection between God and things going wrong, but they don't make the proper connection. Let's get this God out of here, said the Philistines, rather than let's worship this God. Our idols, you see, are absolutely useless. Indeed, when we when we focus on them, when we allow them into our hearts, it brings any trouble. But the encouraging thing that happens in this story is that slowly, slowly, the Philistines start to see that. Understanding dawns. The Philistines start to see two things, in fact. The first thing is that there is a right... Oh, that's a wrong header. I'll do it without a heading. There is a right place for God. It's a very interesting observation that they make in uh, chapter 5, verse 11. They called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said... Let's send the ark of the, of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. There is a right place for this ark. Get it back there, they say. From, from our perspective, from a New Testament perspective, from a Christian perspective, it's not a, the right place is not a geographical place like it was then. But the right place for God is for him to be worshipped and honoured in human lives. How I long, personally, for more and more people to see there is a right place for the living God. To stop saying, let's just get rid of him. Because there seems to be trouble associated with him. But say, let's find the right place for him. And these Philistines have started to do that. And then the point that is uh, on the um, uh, on the PowerPoint: a payment needs to be made. It takes them seven months to for this growing conviction about a right place to uh, uh, to develop. 
But they, when they get round to sending the ark back, they do something else as well. Chapter 6, verse 1. The ark of the Lord had been with the Philistine territory for seven months. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what should we do with the ark of God? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. And they answered, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has been lifted from you. They make five gold tumours and uh, five golden rats. Five, it seems, for the number of cities and the number of rulers in the Philistine nation. Tumours, because they've been afflicted by tumours, or actually the word has a double sense, it can mean a fortified city, so it may have been to represent the five uh, 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 cities. And rats, it seems, because they have realised that the rats are spreading the disease. Is that just sympathetic magic? Well, actually, it might be. But it, is, but it is taking us in a certain direction. Their minds are going in a certain direction. We need to make a payment that corresponds to the trouble that has come upon us. We need, there needs to be a payment to this God of Israel that somehow matches the penalty that we are receiving in ourselves for our treatment of this God. Indeed, they say, it needs to be a costly payment. Let's make these out of gold. They're they're, they're searching towards something that took a thousand years from that moment to come to fruition. They're looking forward, amazingly, to the death of Jesus. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin, for our mistreatment of God. He paid the exact penalty so that it would not need to be visited upon us. And it was enormously costly, just as those Philistines had had sensed Indeed, Jesus was the Son of God. It cost the life of the Son of God to pay for that penalty. And it was not a penalty actually that anyone, not even the Philistines with all their gold, could really pay. It had to be God the Father sending God the Son to pay the penalty so that effectively God himself paid. They're inching towards that. There needs to be a penalty that corresponds to the, uh, a payment that corresponds to the penalty. It needs to be costly, they're saying. And then they say, and, and let's, let's do a test. Let's do a test um, uh, to see whether this this instinct, this intuition that we have is really true. They um, uh, take two cows, they remove their young calves from them, they hitch those cows to a cart 
with the ark of God on it and they step back to see what will happen. Now, now I have seen a sow who has lost her piglets smash down a concrete wall. I, I've, I, I've been on a, a trailer with a, with a newborn calf taking it um, uh, back to, uh, to, to, to the farm proper when the cow has jumped up onto the trailer and nearly trampled me to death. You know, the animals that have lost their young, they are desperate. Okay? And what do they do? They know where their calf is, they go straight to it. If they don't know where their calf is, they go all around the place, causing mayhem. They don't run away at top speed in a straight uh, line. But that's exactly what these uh, two cows did. Verse 12, the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road, lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of uh, Beth Shemesh. The Philistines have engineered a test and it has demonstrated that their intuition is right. It is not wrong to test. Maybe that you're not, not, not yet a Christian here uh, this morning. You're not yet following Jesus. It is not wrong to test. No one, um, uh, no real Christian will ask you just to follow God without having thought it through carefully and perhaps tested whether it is true. One of the supreme tests that the Bible sets sets forward, apart from the overwhelming historical evidence for Jesus, one of the supreme sort of tests that people are, uh, are advised to make is look at Christians. Don't, don't, don't look for them to be perfect. They're not. The, the Christian gospel is all about dealing with imperfect people who sin and fail and mess up all the time and Christians will be like that. Don't, don't look for that in them. Look, though, for, for sin getting subsumed under forgiveness, for disappointment Giving, get, get, giving way to contentment, for, for despair being banished by hope, for sadness somehow having joy breaking through in the middle of it. Look for people who are transformed, not yet perfect, but with something about them that has made a difference. It is not wrong to test. I want to just um, stop for a minute and show you an interview of uh, someone who seems to me has got about to where these Philistines have at that point. His new parents-in-law, 
as of yesterday, I think, someone might know better than me, are um, professing to be Christians. And he's evidently seen something in them and others around. His name's Russell Brand and he was interviewed on uh, Newsnight just recently. Just uh, listen to this clip of the interview. Are we going to get some sound? Your performance, you are a very, very mobile, energetic figure. Do you ever worry you're going to burn out? Well, I'm going to die, so yes. You're all going to die. <laughs> well, so, I don't, so yes, I yeah. do worry. Yeah. <laughs> you, I'm just going to this Oliver Stone remark that you're burning with a very, very high flame and mm. will you be able to keep it up? I don't think that's something I can necessarily control. I mean, if I speak mm. a little more meekly and balance this on my lap, I still think the spectre of death will loom. Yeah. The icy hand will still land upon my shoulder, perhaps, you know, a couple of hours later. But, you know, I don't want to get all Kerouac about so, it, um, but it's quite good to blaze about. But do you think this could, th- that you can continue at this level? I hope not, because I'm utterly bored of it. <laughs> I want to you? ascend. What yeah, I don't want to be here for much longer. I mean, not towards you. You're lovely and fantastic, but and it's a thrill to talk to you. But I don't want to dwell here with such trivial things for very much longer. You mean you, mean, you, you seek death? No, you don't not death, death, but between now and death, it would be ever so nice, I think, if I were able to achieve something that was truly valuable, some of evocation of beauty, togetherness, the exposure of the illusion of separation, and some connection between people. Perhaps use this energy some for something better than... Something more worthwhile. One would hope. That's my deepest wish. Do you have any information on what it might be? Yes. We're making this documentary currently about, on the subject of fame and consumerism and the way that we're sold these ideas and these narratives and the way they keep us dumb and the way that I myself was seduced by it growing up in Essex and thought, oh yes, I, I want to be famous and now I am famous and what does it mean? Ashes in my mouth. So I want to communicate this idea to people that are aspiring to it, culturally specifically wanting to become famous, but also similarly through the purchase of endless brands, the purchase of different ideas, Kerry Katona at Iceland. You know, so I, I sort of momentarily thought when I thought, oh, I like Kerry Katona, it doesn't matter how much negative publicity she attracts, she'll still, Iceland will still use her because of the familiarity, it's still appealing, it's still attractive. But, and I'm above that culturally because, you know, I'm above Heat magazine, I've read a few books, but like, you know, if, Robert, if there's two aftershaves on the shelf and one of them's got Robert Downey Jr.'s on it, that might be an appealing aspect to me. So I, I would like to somehow expose in, in myself and explore it in myself and culturally the possibility of us aspiring to greater things. Many have said, haven't they, Jeremy, that the, possi- the, the fact that we desire, we desire these products, that we, des- we have these aspirations is an indication that we can still change, that we can still strive, that we have within us a yearning for something higher. Someone told me once that all desire is the, the desire to be at one with God in substitute form. So perhaps we can draw attention not to the shadow on the wall, but to the source of light itself. Do you believe in God? Yes. I'm really surprised. Ah. Do you have any, I mean, have you always believed in Do you worship? Do you go to church? What do you do? I, I pray and I meditate. He's on a journey, isn't he? Someone has said that all desire is the desire to be at one with God in substitute form. So perhaps we can draw attention not to the shadow on the wall but to the source of light itself. I hope there are people here on a journey. I hope there are people here who have, for whom it has made some sense what we have been tracing with the Philistines. 
that our idols do turn to ashes, as Russell Brand said. They do. Trouble is, it's only when we get them that we discover how disappointing they are, and so much of our life is wasted striving for them. I hope there are people here who have have engaged with what the Philistines were slowly learning. This, this, this God of Israel, this God of the universe, we must come to terms with him. There needs to be a payment. It needs to be costly. Thank God for Jesus. Because I can't pay it. What, what use is little gold things? What use is anything? But God can. He did in Jesus. You know, there's, there's a deeply disappointing verse in these two chapters. Ken read it as the last one that we looked at. Verse 16. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then bowed and worshipped the living God. They could have done. Returned the same day to Ekron. What about you? Perhaps it's made some sense. Yeah. Perhaps, like like Russell Brand, you are on a journey. What are you going to do about it? Are you now going to turn back and just get on with life now that God's safely at a distance? Or are you going to do something about it? And Christians here, who amazingly, by God's grace, and it is only God's grace, it is not your, your, somehow your dignity uh, or wonderfulness as a human being. Christians here, for whom God has finally has opened your eyes. And God has given you that joy. Will you live for the glory of Jesus. Our strap line for our church is delighting in God, displaying his glory. And as we often say, those two are intimately connected. As you come to know the living God, as you are transformed by knowing the living God, you will display his glory. Those outside looking on are right to use the quality of your life as one test, not the only one, but one test of whether this Christianity stuff may be true. The Israelites, if you read on at the end of chapter 6, are far from perfect still. They worship, they celebrate that the ark has returned, but there's still an amount of impudence about them and they still suffer. More of that next week. But they are a living witness. Will you be?
I don't know where Russell Brand's journey will take him. I don't know where anyone here's journey will end. But I long with all my heart for some to see and find the living God. Because you'll never be the same. 